Why don't we uh, turn our, our eyes to the, uh, the screen up above, or you can look at me as well, but that probably looks better than, than me. Um, so I was reading a book recently, and it was by a, uh, a Christian author named Ravi Zacharias. Some of you have probably heard of him or heard him or read a book by him. Maybe others of you haven't. But he was recounting a story of how he was meeting with somebody that was an Olympic athlete. This, this, this young man had ambitions for greatness. He had ambitions to be the best at his particular field of athletics. This young man had, from childhood, sought to be one who, of course, would win gold at his particular sport. And uh, he had to kind of do it himself from early on because he had a kind of a, a strained relationship with his father. And so from the age 12, he was training, training, training. He would have to fund his own, his own equipment. He would have to fund his own training. Everything he did was, was self-sustained and self-motivated and, and self-supplied. And so he trained and he trained and trained and he got very good at his sport, so, so good that his country, he was able to represent them at the Olympics. And as he was vid visiting with Ravi Zacharias, he was sharing with him the story of how he finally got to his event. And he was standing there at the starting line after all these years of hard training and effort and exercise. And he was, he was a favorite at this event. And as he was standing there, millions of people, the world around, looking watching TV, there watching him as he was taking his place at the starting line. He said, later on as he was recounting this to Ravi Zacharias, he had a strange thought that came over him as he was standing there at the starting line. And he thought this. He suddenly, out of nowhere, said to himself, I wonder if my father is watching me. It, it came out of nowhere. He was not expecting it at all. But as he stood there at that starting line, this was the, this was the question that came to his mind. It wasn't on how am I going to take this turn or go that distance. It was, I wonder if my father is watching me. That question kind of haunted him. He ended up actually coming in third place, maybe partly because he was distracted. But the overarching thought as he was there, ready to compete, was a concern about whether he was gaining his father's approval. You know, recently I heard another athlete, Olympic athlete, the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time. You know who that is? Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps has won more golds than mo many people have even competed for. And uh, he won many, he, he won so many gold medals, but not long after he started his, his campaign of winning all these medals, he was arrested for DUI. And his life just spiraled out of control. And I saw a documentary on him recently uh, before the last Summer Olympics. And it was showing, following him as he was going to rehab, trying to get his life back together. And one of the prevailing themes as well was he had a, a challenging relationship with his father as well. And I'm thinking to myself, he was trying to brave, he was trying to brave the... Uh, the, the act of calling his dad to come and meet him at this rehab center because he wanted to have a heart-to-heart -heart with him. And I'm thinking, this guy has millions of dollars. 
This guy has all these gold medals, and yet he is still longing for the approval of his father. Very insightful, insightful thought when it comes to the human psyche. Because what this, these two Olympic athletes, athletes show is that you and I have these longings in our hearts that are, that are there and they're constantly coming out. And whether you and I recognize them or not is a different question. But this morning we're going to consider what is this basic human longing? So I want to look at a story in the, the, the Bible. It's actually a story about Jesus. Now I'm sure most of you know who Jesus is, but just to make sure everyone's up to speed, Jesus lived about 2,000 years ago. And uh, he was, according to the Bible, he was the son of God. As we looked at last week, there was this guy named Abraham to whom God gave these promises that he would make him a great nation and that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. And what that ultimate fulfillment was is that God, the father, and we'll explain this probably going forward, but God the Father had a son, and that son freely chose to become a human being so that he could rescue humanity from the mess that we're in. We're in a little bit of a mess, aren't we? You look around, you see it in the news, you don't have to look very far. Because human beings, we lack the capacity to to help ourselves. We needed an outside power to come and to rescue us. And so Jesus as the Son of God, came in the flesh and he was born of a woman and he lived a life of service and love and kindness towards all. And there's a a particular story that I want to look at just briefly this morning that captivates and captures the very longing that all of us have deep down inside. It's in this book called the Book of Luke. And uh, hopefully this clicker we got working it does not seem to be working still. Aaron, what do I need to do? There you go. All right. Good. Well, that wasn't me, but we'll, we'll go with it. There we go. Okay. So this, this is in a, in, a, in a book of the Bible called the Book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. There were four writers who wrote about the life of Jesus, and Luke was one of them. The story that he tells is actually told by all three other gospel writers. And so it's a very, very important story. Many of us might look at it and say, well, what's the big deal? But in fact, Jesus, at the end of this story, we're not going to see it in our reading, but at the end of the story, he actually tells the people in the room that this experience was so important that wherever the stories are told about Jesus, this story about this woman will be told and it should be told. So we're just following Jesus' command here this morning. We're telling this story because it's one of the most beautiful stories that I've come across in the Bible. So what happens is, as you read there, behold a woman in the city. Sorry, let's back up a second. What has happened is that Jesus is invited to go to a party that is being thrown by by a man by the name of Simon. Simon had had leprosy at some point, but Jesus had actually healed Simon. And so Simon out of gratitude, wants to throw a party for him. Now, Simon was a Pharisee. Now, if you've been here with us at all lately, you will know that I I have a lot to say about Pharisees. And you probably have heard that term before, even if you are not a, a church attendee. But a Pharisee, these were the religious elite. 
They were the best of the best. You see, they followed the rules meticulously. They were so they were so they were so successful and advanced at following the rules that people just assumed that they were the righteous people. They were the they were the right ones. They were the good ones. And yet the Pharisees, it's interesting because the word Pharisee itself, we've talked about this before, but just to go back over it, the word Pharisee literally means a separatist. So the Pharisees were ones who separated themselves from others who were not keeping the rules. I don't know if you've ever come across people like this, but they, they, they are so holy, they are so righteous that they can't spend time with people who aren't holy and righteous. That's where we get the idea of a Pharisee. That's, that's when somebody is called a Pharisee today, that's kind of what we're talking about. They are, they are too good to spend time with people who don't follow the rules. But I tell you what, people who follow the rules but separate themselves, they're kind of miserable people, aren't they? You ever spend time with people who are self-righteous? They do it perfectly and they look down upon everybody who doesn't do it perfectly? That's because they are trying to maintain a certain level of safety by removing themselves from others. But I tell you what, Jesus comes and shows us a picture of of an experience that prioritizes relationship over man-made rule following. So what happens is Jesus is here at this party. And they're having this party, and all of a sudden, Luke tells us what happens next. And behold, a woman in the city who was what? What does it say? Who was a sinner. That's an interesting thing to call her, isn't it? Elsewhere in the the Bible, it says that all have sinned. What it means when we talk about being a sinner is simply somebody who is not living up to the rules. Somebody who is not doing the right thing. Somebody who who is living a life of rebellion or selfishness or a life of of really pain and hurt towards others. But what this woman was, this phrase, she was a woman in the city who was a sinner, that's kind of a euphemism for she was a prostitute. That's what we come to understand as we read the story. She was a prostitute. And yet she's there, and she comes into this home, and she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him. And what is she doing? She is weeping. She is weeping. So picture yourself. Imagine you were in this room right now, and we're kind of just all hanging out, and all of a sudden you hear somebody out of nowhere just weeping and wailing, and you look over and you're thinking, what is going on with this person? And as you... Focus in on what's taking place. Notice what it says she's doing. And she began to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. So she's there and she's she's going about this crazy act. What in the world is she doing? And as you can imagine, it must be pretty uncomfortable if you're sitting there and all of a sudden this lady is disrupting the whole party. She's weeping and she's wailing. And of all things she's doing, she she is weeping over the feet of Jesus and her tears are falling down on his feet and she's taking her hair and she's drying and wiping his feet with her hair. Can you imagine? I mean, that's a very intimate act, isn't it? I mean, if you did that to me today, I mean, obviously I can't do that to you, but that's another story. But if you did that to me today, I would assume that you are my wife. I mean, my wife doesn't even do that. Maybe we should give her, give her some pointers, though, right? 
But I, this is a very, very intimate act. Now, we're not going to explain all the reasons why she's doing this. We will just briefly say that she has apparently information that the other followers of Jesus didn't pay attention to because she had heard Jesus say that he was going to soon die. And so she has taken it upon herself to prepare him for his death. And what would happen was, in the ancient Near East, you would, you would use ointments and perfumes to, to prepare a, a, a person's body for burial. And so she's thinking to herself, I have to do this. I have to do this. Now, the other writers who, who talk about this story, they actually explain that this oil that she is using is so expensive that it is a year's worth of wages. A year's worth of wages. Why is she doing it? Why is she doing it? Simon is there, and he's paying attention to what she's doing. And Luke reads his mind. Actually, Jesus is the one who reads it. Because Simon's sitting there, and notice what happens. Jesus can tell that Simon is a little upset about this situation, and Simon thinks to himself, how could this man allow this loose woman to do this to him? Doesn't, doesn't he know that his reputation is going to be marred by doing this? You see, Jesus prioritized relationship over reputation. In fact, so, so burdened was Jesus by drawing close to people that he was even accused of being a, a glutton and a drunkard. People they jeered at him and they said, what's this guy doing sitting with these people, fellowshipping with these people, being with these people? So Jesus looks at Simon. Jesus answered his thoughts and said, Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose would love him more? After that, Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the largest debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, and this is the punchline, I tell you, her sins, and he says, don't get me wrong, there are many, have been forgiven. So she has done what? Shown me much love. Much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. You see, this woman, this prostitute, this sinner, as Luke calls her, this woman understood that her longings were being fulfilled in Jesus. Because one thing we have to realize is that the most fundamental human longing is to love and to be loved. That's, that's, if you were to reduce human beings down to our most basic, fundamental core value, that is what we long for. 
We long to love and to be loved. Now, some of you might be sitting here right now and say, well, this is a really soft idea. Like, that's, that's kind of wishy-washy. Or I don't ever think about these things. I never consciously go around looking to be loved. It's interesting because some of you are familiar with a woman by the name of Brene Brown. She actually, who is a, has a PhD in social work, she puts it this way. We are psychologically, emotionally, cognitively, and spiritually hardwired for what? Connection, love, and belonging. Connection, along with love and belonging, is why we are here. And it is what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. That's one of the reasons why we as a church are prioritizing connection. We are prioritizing it as a value, as a culture of connection and community. Because, again, at the end of the day, at the most fundamental level, you and I were designed to and long to experience connection and belonging. We want to both receive love and we want to give love. As I said, you may not be necessarily conscious of it. You may not understand that that's what's going on deep down inside your heart. But we, the Bible presents a picture of a God that is fundamentally relational in nature. And we, we going forward, would unpack this in the future. But the God that the Bible presents is a small community made up of Father, Son, and Spirit. And within that small triune community is all the love that the universe could ever need. And so he has designed us to live on connection and community and belonging and love and to, to be able to love. And so this woman, this prostitute, the reason why she was willing to empty out her whole bank account, the reason why she could not help herself is because she sensed in Jesus someone to whom she belonged. And she couldn't help but go and pour out her gratitude and her love and her, her, her appreciation for what he did for her and what he would continue to do for her. You know, a few years ago, and I told this story before, so forgive me if you've heard it a thousand times, but I, th this most acutely presses home with me with an experience I had a number of years ago when I was living in New Hampshire, when we were pastoring there. I, I never realized that this was the most fundamental longing that I had. And, uh, you know, some of us, especially, I don't want to be stereotypical, amen, but some of us males have a problem understanding this. But um, I came into a situation when I was pastoring a different church where I was experiencing constant anxiety about some of the challenges I was facing as a pastor. And some of my parishioners, the people who belonged to my church, uh, were giving me a hard time. I know none of you would ever do that. Amen? But they were giving me a hard time, and it was driving me crazy. And uh, I was having a hard time sleeping at night, and we were, we were arguing about certain issues in the church, and, and we were doing it via email, and they would send me an email basically criticizing me and putting me in my place. And I would spend the night in bed just going over, okay, how am I going to respond to them? How, how am I going to respond to them? How can I prove them wrong? 
And this was driving me nuts. And, and I, I used to like pray, and God, why can't you take this away? Like, just take away my anxiety. And I was quoting Bible verses like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And nothing I was doing was working. I just had so much anxiety. And, and uh, again, I would plot these emails in my head, and, and I would finally get up and write them and fire them off to them. And I'd say, ha ha, you know, that'll teach them. Like, they'll just come bowing down at my feet and saying, oh, you're right, you're right, we're wrong. But you know what? They never did that. Not even to this day have they done that, but that's another story. But one morning I was, I was, I was in prayer, and I was down on my knees, and I was pouring my heart out to God, and I was thinking, God, why can't I shake this problem? Why can't I get rid of this anxiety? And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I all of a sudden realized that I was longing to have other people validate me. I was so anxious for their approval. I was so anxious to belong to them. I was so eager to have them say, you're right, you're right, you're the smartest person in the world, you're the best pastor we've ever had. And it occurred to me that I had been raised a Christian my whole life but I had never embraced the fact that I belonged to God. Because when you realize that you belong to God, you don't hustle for approval from other people. You don't hustle to feel like you belong to others. Because you are so secure in your belonging to God that you can just be who you are without fear of judgment and condemnation. And that's what brought this woman to the feet of Jesus. She's pouring out her heart because she has found somebody to whom she finally belongs. Now, we want to be a church that lives out that reality. I can stand up here and preach this, but if you don't see me living it out, my words are not only useless, they are damaging. And so we want to be a community that lives out this truth of belonging. And we want you to know that you will always have a home with us where you can belong. And we want to show the gospel to you, not just speak the gospel to you. So I'm a, I, just want to, I just want to reiterate the fact that at the core of, of who we are, all of us have this fundamental longing and desire to be loved and to love. There's a, one last verse. John, who was one of Jesus' most beloved disciples, he put it this way later on. He said, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God, and that's who we really are. That's who we really are. Do you realize that you have a father that loves you, to whom you belong, that all the, all the longings of your heart are wrapped up and fulfilled in him? Do you realize that? As we go forward, we'll continue to unpack what that means in the future, so I hope you'll come back. But I hope you'll go home recognizing that as a relational creature, all of your longings are found in Jesus. As he has nothing but love and acceptance for you.
we're going to transition here for a moment as we, as we sing a song together as we close. And uh, you'll have to bear with me for one second because we have to switch out the microphones. Sean's trying to find his pick.
Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can truly be called your children. May we find all of our longings fulfilled in you day by day is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Sabbath.